Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes. It is neither investment, legal, nor tax advice and does not represent the opinions of the employers of the host or guest. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Casual investors understand that states approach taxation of its citizens differently and can have different approaches to raising revenue. However, in the last month, there's been a major divergent shift in the directionality of state tax policy. Seven states, including New York and California, released aggressive and interrelated proposals to increase taxes. Some of these proposals center around forms of the controversial wealth tax, a tax that would raise revenue from unrealized gains. Jared Walzak will explore the new proposals, the likelihood of passage, and their broader impact. Jared is the vice president of state projects at the Tax Foundation. He's the lead researcher of the annual State Business Tax Climate Index and Location Matters. He's been recently quoted extensively on this topic in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Post. Trying to predict tax legislation can be folly. However, states are known to be the laboratory for broader national tax legislation. These state proposals can provide interesting data points on the mood of the legislatures and the directionality of tax policy across the nation. It's important to know about them. Enjoy the conversation with Jared Walzak. Welcome aboard, Jared. Thank you for having me. Your research and your quote worthiness has really come into play recently. There have been a lot of different proposals and thoughts on tax policy, and in particular on a group of proposals that seven states put together. We'll get into that in a second, but how did you get into the tax policy world? Maybe give us a little bit about your background. Yeah, I got here somewhat by accident. I think a lot of people in policy have a circuitous path. I worked for a state legislator for many years. I did policy consulting. I did some political work. Really glad to get out of the political work. And presenting at a conference years ago on a policy issue not related to taxation, met some people in the tax community, kept in touch, got a job offer, said no to the job offer, got it again later, said yes. And I've been doing tax for over eight years now and just worked my way up, found that State tax is a small but really exciting field. I know that for a lot of people, that doesn't sound like something that should be exciting, but there's a lot of fascinating stuff going on in tax and sometimes maybe a little more fascinating than I'd like, which is the case here. I'm based in New York, lots of clients and friends in California, and in stark opposition to what's happening in, say, Texas and Florida, a lot of what keeps me busy are people trying to arbitrage these different effects. So everything you talk about there, while it's not exciting, it's important to a lot of people. It is. We know that taxes affect economic decision-making. They can affect migration. They can affect job creation. They affect even when people stay in the same place and don't have those obvious immediate effects. We know that tax arbitrage takes place, and we know that's not frictionless, that there are costs economically and to individuals associated with that. Tax drives a lot of behavior. So let's talk a little bit about there are lots of different kinds of taxes. And from your perspective, I'm sure you see different things going on around income tax, capital gains tax, the estate taxes, and now wealth taxes. How do you divide and conquer those different types of things? Some of these have the same theme. Over the last two years, we've largely seen a focus in both red and blue states on reducing 
taxation. Maybe in 2021, it was largely red states cutting. In 2022, it was everyone cutting because revenues were so high. And now we're seeing a dichotomy. We're seeing a divergence here where some states are still cutting taxes or making reforms, and others are focusing on significantly higher rates on high earners and high net worth individuals. And they're not always the same proposal. Some of them are significantly higher income tax rates. Some of them are capital gains tax proposals. Some of them are wealth taxes or mark to market of capital gains income. All these different approaches, what they have in common is that the desire is there to significantly raise taxes on high earners, on investment and entrepreneurship. And it's not for the most part driven by real or perceived revenue needs or even with a goal for what to do with the money in many of these states. It's more the perception that there's a lot of wealth out there and that there's an opportunity now that maybe that revenue increase that states have been seeing for the last few years has slowed down to go after these classes of income and wealth. They're different proposals. We have to think about them very different in terms of from their economic effects, but they're all being driven by some of the same ideas. You talk a little bit about the raising revenue versus maybe, say, the wealth redistribution aspect of taxation policy. What are we talking about, really, in terms of the numbers? I know when the estate tax gets bandied about at the federal level and they're talking about either eliminating it or increasing it, at the end of the day, it's really only talking about a percentage point of the budget at best. Are those the types of numbers that we're talking about with these tax policies, or do they have a bigger dent in the overall revenue of these states? It depends what we're talking about. In California, wealth tax, if it brought in the amount of revenue that proponents say, that would immediately be about 10% of all tax revenues, maybe more if we assume that last year's revenues were anomalously high. I don't think it will bring in that much because they basically assume that no one will change patterns of behavior, no one will leave, that their exit tax will be perfectly effective and keep people locked in. And they I think, assume some probably unrealistic things about valuations and markets. Nonetheless, if we take them at face value, we're talking about maybe a tenth or more of their entire tax base being a wealth tax. That, I think, has to be very concerning, not just because of what it does to wealth and to wealthy individuals in the state who might leave, but also just the volatility that that creates and the uncertainty for tax revenues. Well, we'll talk a little bit about more on the wealth tax side, sort of the ins and outs and why that might be either problematic or administratively difficult. But just recently, seven states came together and issued their proposals almost as one. Maybe talk a little bit about what that looked like. The Californias, the New Yorks, who's involved here? And their proposals are different, but at the same time, they locked arms a little bit, I guess, to sort of prepare a unified front. Talk a little bit about what happened on that front. In the past, when we've had proposals that maybe surprise people like wealth taxes, one of the arguments has been, well, people are clearly going to leave. And that's a very good argument. The proponents here seem to feel that they could provide a united front to basically say, where are you going to go? Because we're going to do it everywhere. Now, I don't think that's true because one, most of these states probably aren't going to adopt any such proposal. And two, there are a lot of states that aren't on this list that could be very attractive. But this did have policymakers from California and New York, but also Maryland and Connecticut and Minnesota and a number of other states coming together and saying, we have this united focus on taxing wealthy individuals, high net worth individuals. We're not all going to do it the same way. Sometimes it's because of differences in preferences or approaches, maybe what they think is more politically interesting or what they've tried before. 
Sometimes it's constitutional differences. New York policymakers recognize their constitution doesn't allow a wealth tax, so they've tried something else, a mark-to-market capital gains income tax. California policymakers recognize their constitution doesn't allow a wealth tax, so they've said we're pushing a constitutional amendment alongside it. Washington policymakers probably realize their constitution doesn't allow a wealth tax, and they've done what they've done for years and said we don't really care. Do you think that this locking arms approach is going to help politically move these things forward? Or do you look at it from a policy perspective and then sort of a political feasibility perspective and see that it may or may not work? One, I don't think many of these proposals are viable. I would take some of them seriously and I would take the directionality seriously, but I don't think seven states are going to have these taxes. I don't think the three states that are looking at basically pure wealth taxes are going to have those in place in a year or two. So there are going to be lots of places that a high net worth individual could move to if any one or multiple states adopted these. But in terms of this linking arms, I do take it somewhat seriously. I think that it's sending a message to taxpayers that these states really care about this issue. That may not work in these states' favor. In fact, even if you fail to adopt something, what you're doing is sending the message that this is where you're going on taxes. And we have so many other states that are going the opposite direction. 43 states reduced tax burden substantially over the last two years. 21 states cut individual income taxes. 13 states cut corporate income taxes. Some overlap in that. We have states cutting sales taxes. We have states providing other relief. And some of them are coming back to the well. They're saying we did it. We can afford to do it more. And if you're looking at a state where every year the discussion is can we provide a lower tax environment while still providing the services people want? Or a state in which every year it's, can we create a new category and classification of tax? Can we do a wealth tax? Whether you do it or not, I think that's sending a signal to investors, to entrepreneurs, that maybe this isn't where you want to be. I note with interest the message that was sent when the Amazon deal in New York ended up not happening or getting shut down. And people around my orbit said, well, you know, it may not have been a good use of funds and said, well, it may not have been a good use of funds, but I think it, whether you believe that or not, and I tend to think it would have been good, but it also sends a message to the community that that type of industry is going to have less support than maybe it would have if they'd located their headquarters. And so maybe that's a similar type of message going out on the taxation side. The message does matter. Okay, something like the New York situation with Amazon, it gets complex because those were a lot of incentives. It was extremely generous. And you have a real question, should we be engaging in that? Is that too much corporate welfare? I tend to think it is. The problem is that the message was not just we shouldn't be providing these sort of handouts to businesses. It was at some point, we don't want businesses. And that's a very different message. New York didn't have to enter that bidding process, probably shouldn't have entered that bidding process. We may disagree on that. But you don't want to send this signal, we don't want business here. And that's something we've sometimes heard. You speak of Amazon, you talk about Washington, you see Seattle local officials who have sometimes said, we don't actually want this company here. We don't want big companies here because that's not our vision of Seattle. That's probably not the message you want to be sending because you're getting a lot of revenue from that. You're creating a lot of economic activity. And I think states need to be sensitive to the fact that as they're talking about wealth taxes, higher taxes on high net worth individuals, I don't want to say that there's no capacity to discuss these things. But when we're talking about massive new taxes that fundamentally change investment, you're going to have a policy impact even if you don't implement the policy. You talked about directionality and taking that seriously. I noted with great interest, Massachusetts passed a millionaire's tax and sort of raised rates at a certain level there. 
So there is an appetite in different states, different parts of the world to tax different parts of the population differently. Do you see that as a trend confirmed by these seven proposals? Or is this something that is localized that isn't going to impact maybe the red states or Texas or those types of areas? Well, if the question is whether Texas is going to seriously consider a wealth tax anytime soon, I think the answer is no. There's clearly a focus that this is in states that have probably a very different political salience and political environment. More than that, though, Massachusetts. I think Massachusetts is really interesting. This is a state where they recently, constitutionally, at the ballot, changed to allow a significantly higher rate on very high earners. I think that was a mistake for Massachusetts. I think it reverses a very good income tax, something that has really helped them to reverse that image of being taxachusetts. And it's just turning the clock back. And I don't think that's good. But this got 52%. I credit those who pushed this for, one, constitutionally setting who it would apply to. It's not something where legislators can come back and say, we talk about millionaires now, but hey, it's 200000 now, it's 100000 now. They can't do that without another constitutional amendment. They also designated what the spending was for. Voters like both of those things, the assurance it's not going to be on them and a pretty clear vision of how they'd spend it. And it still only got 52%. In Massachusetts, they won. You can't gainsay that, but I don't see this as a groundswell of support for highly progressive taxes. And I think that voters and taxpayers generally, they are open to progressive taxation. Most people support that in this country, whether they're right or wrong. That is probably the prevailing view, but they want something for it. They recognize their economic costs. They recognize that it's going to reduce certain economic output. They want a demonstration that there's a good reason for it. I don't think we have a very envy-based society. I don't think that the idea of wealth taxes just to reduce the wealth of people who have a lot of money is very attractive if there's not a good argument that it's going to improve societal outcomes elsewhere. Let's steer back a little bit to the concept of the overall wealth tax. Let's describe that a little bit because I think most people certainly have their arms around income and capital gains taxes and somewhat around estate taxes, although that usually comes later, (laughs) less enviably. But the wealth tax is something that's a little bit different. People may have some experience with it in analogizing it to property taxes, something where you have to write a check based on the value of your land or your property every year. And that while it may not feel good, it's not necessarily foreign. But maybe talk a little bit about what the wealth tax is and why it's different and why it's kind of a big leap from the current taxation policy. In its purest form, A wealth tax is going to be levied against all of your assets, both tangible and intangible, every year. So this is talking about not only your real property and your physical possessions, some of which are easily valued or at least have comparables. Some of them may not have comparables. It's also all of your, say, financial investments, some of which are going to be stocks and bonds. Those have a clear value in the market. Others might be your ownership stake in a closely held business that isn't valued in the market or a startup that, who knows, is it valuable? Is it going to be acquired for millions, hundreds of millions, or is it going to fail? It may be a lot of things that do not have a current value. It can theoretically even be complete intangibles, things like goodwill, reputation. It can be a lot of things that it's really hard to put a number value on. Different states are doing this in different ways. Washington state is saying we're looking at things that have some sort of market value on them. So stocks and bonds and other things that are traded, they're going to be included. Your business ownership stake, if it's not being sold, is not. California would include that. 
Now, they have some provisions to allow payment over time based on these valuations, because if you don't, how much is your startup worth right now? And are you going to have to break it up to be able to pay this bill if it gets a high assessed value? But these protections aren't nearly good enough, and they still result in this tax bill. It's coming, and it's coming on value that might dissipate before you ever realize it. And even in like the narrowest versions of this, where it's, say, mark-to-market on capital gains income, which is what New York's doing, what Illinois is looking at, you're paying on unrealized gains. You have to divest. You have to sell something potentially to be able to pay this tax. And of course, these gains might disappear and you can carry forward losses, but you can only carry forward them against future gains. It's more like the way we do corporate taxation. It's not like you're getting a check back in the years where you lost money. On top of that, I guess the question that pops up occasionally is with that carry forward situation. If you were to have some sort of monstrous gain and then you get your value cut in half, what happens specifically with that? In California's case, where you're able to pay over a period of time, is there some sort of netting effect or do they go year to year and it becomes a complicated mess? Well, there is a netting effect and it's a complicated mess. Those things aren't necessarily <laughs> at odds with each other. This is the mark-to-market approach. What you're going to have is the carry-forward of losses to future years' gains. You can pay on your unrealized gains in year one. If you have losses in year two, you don't get a refund check. You're not getting anything back. But when sometime in the future you have gains again that net out above those losses, you reduce your future taxation. So one, big long-term loan potentially to state government. Two, you may not ever have those gains again. I mean, hopefully people have gains again, but it's not a guarantee and there's no timing element of it. So it reduces your future taxation. But whereas you have to pay the government the moment you have unrealized gains, the government doesn't have to pay you back when you have unrealized losses. We talked a little bit about the constitutionality of the wealth tax. How does that work? If, As I recall in New York, and this is really dusting off synapses last fired during the bar exam many decades ago, that... The wealth tax in New York is unconstitutional. And so there's a concept of recharacterizing that as gain and somehow sneaking around that. Maybe talk a little bit about how that works with constitutionality and how the governments are working around that issue. There are both state and federal constitutional issues. Obviously, the state ones are going to vary from state to state. A state like New York has some provisions in the Constitution on uniformity and treatment of property. And all of these classes of wealth are in some ways classes of property that would either prohibit or put really sharp restrictions on the ability to tax wealth, to tax all assets every year. You would need a constitutional change in most states because they allow property taxes, but they allow it on specific classes and all of these things are not in those classes. There might be uniformity clauses that say you have to tax things equally and you can't have significant exemptions. Lots of state constitutional reasons that are going to be specific to each state for why this might not be possible. There's a broader federal issue or maybe several federal constitutional issues. One of them is simply the reach of these taxes. They've been proposed on worldwide wealth. And we have well established that your domiciliary state, the place where you live, can tax all of your income from around the world. But then the assumption is it's never been as explicitly stated in case law as one would like, but the trade-off is you do get the credit for taxes paid to other states, so you're not facing double taxation. The courts have at least indicated that if that weren't the case, this would be a serious problem because you'd have double taxation. In practice, you have some of it anyway. This wealth tax idea is taxing all of your assets 
anywhere around the world. And we have never established that that's something a state can do. There's this idea that income that is flowing to you when you live in a state is beneficial to you in that state. Assets, theoretically, I guess, they're beneficial to you in that state. They're located somewhere else. That's a change in nexus. It's a change in how we treat taxation. There are constitutional questions associated with that. There's questions about interfering with interstate commerce in some of this. And then particularly when you look at California, California lawmakers have basically said, yeah, we know people are going to leave if we do this. So let's lock them in. Let's create an exit tax. If you leave, you pay a big tax on the way out the door. And for up to 10 years after you leave, we can continue assessing part of this. Some of the gains that maybe you realized while you were here and some other elements of this as you continue to realize some of these old gains in another state, we're going to keep taxing you. That is a very long arm for California to be taxing activity that after years of a person living in another state, some serious constitutional questions about whether that impermissibly interferes with interstate commerce, whether it interferes with the right of travel, and just generally how it interacts with other tax codes. The wealth tax has been tried by different countries with varying degrees of success. I think it's at the moment in a bit of a swoon. A lot of places have tried it and maybe turned it off or limited it a little bit. What's the track record of the wealth tax elsewhere? Among OECD countries, your developed countries, 14 have had wealth taxes at some point. And that dipped all the way down to three last year. Now, this year, it ticks back up to four because the new uh, left-wing government of Colombia has reimposed a wealth tax that had been allowed to lapse, and they're also expanding it. So we will have potentially a significant wealth tax in Colombia across national borders that they have reduced overall wealth. They've reduced investment. They've hurt the economy in a variety of ways. So they haven't achieved their objectives. And it's obviously harder to leave a country than it is to cross state lines. So if all of these countries, many of which have political cultures to the left of the U.S., and many of which have more progressive overall systems, or at least more progressive tax systems than the U.S., have said, this isn't working for us. It's not achieving these objectives. It's not very clear that it's going to work in the United States. So as we wind up here, we've got aggressive an interesting concept in wealth taxes. We've got a general directionality around capital gains and income tax increases in certain states. What does your crystal ball tell you as far as not just the directionality, which we're paying attention to, but also the real feasibility politically of these things moving forward? Well, I would take a few of them seriously. In Washington and California, you have prominent lawmakers as sponsors. You have significant interest in Washington. This sort of fits into a broader agenda of significant tax changes that lawmakers are thinking of. And they have some momentum. In California, a previous bill passed the assembly before getting bottled up in the Senate. I wouldn't put my money on them passing, but I wouldn't ignore them either. And I would say that, I mean, there's a range of proposals and some of these other proposals could happen. Is there going to be a wealth tax in Hawaii, California, Washington? I don't know. But if I were in those states, I would be worried about the direction of much higher taxes on high net worth individuals, high earners. If not this year, maybe what's hacked like this in the future year or other taxes sort of approximating this. I do take that direction seriously. And what I think you're going to see is some of these states and a few others. Oregon is not on the wealth tax list, but they've got like a 13% income tax proposal. You are going to see this wider gulf between states where most states have much lower rates of taxation 
And then you have these handful that have very high rates of taxation, especially on investors and entrepreneurs. And that's going to have an effect. Again, 21 states have cut individual income taxes over the last two years. We have a dozen states, many of them repeats, not all, who are very serious about doing that this year. And if you have a choice, if you're looking at someone who might be way more mobile now than in the past because your job can travel with you, or if you are a business owner, you don't necessarily need your entire workforce with you because of remote work. And you can choose a state that every year asks, are we collecting too much in taxes? Or you can choose a state that every year says, what's the latest and greatest idea on how we can extract more in taxes? I think you're going to see more people voting with their feet. Really interesting stuff. And thank you, Jared, for coming on. What is the best way for us to follow your work and to read your articles as they come out? We publish all of our analysis on our website, taxfoundation.org. I also comment on a lot of this on Twitter at Jared Walzak is my handle. We are going to keep having this conversation because it's not going away. Thank you very much for being on. All of that information is going to be on the show notes. And I look forward to checking back in with you maybe in a little bit to see what happens with some of these things either pass or don't pass. Well, thank you again for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Fraser Rice is an employee of Next Capital Management, LLC. This podcast is not investment, legal, or tax advice, nor does it reflect the opinions of Next Capital Management. Any opinions represented in the show are Fraser's individually and not an endorsement of the guests.